At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Litsky. Let's meet the panel. Uh, first up is commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. So Sharon Graham is the surprise winner of a, a tight, uh, although not as tight as it looked, a three-way race for General Secretary of Unite, replacing hmm. Len McCluskey. This was after many people insisted she pull out and let Steve Turner be the sole candidate of the left. Firstly, what, what do you make of her as, as, as a candidate? It's interesting. I, I get a good vibe from her. I mean, her politics are on the left uh, of current leadership, which is as it should be for a, a trade union. Yeah. Uh, it, it is interesting that she was asked to step down in favour of McCluskey's, uh, in, in favour of letting the boys fight it out, as it were. And in the end, she got 40, nearly 47,000 votes to Steve Turner's 42,000. He was McCluskey's preferred option. And Jared Coyne, who was Starmer's preferred option, got 35,000. So what many people are saying in the union, now the thing that cut through was her promise, which became almost like a motto, workplace, not Westminster. Starmer's preferred candidate never looked likely to win. So this is probably a relief. It was a sort of a plague on both your houses response from the membership and probably quite smart for that, you know. They want neither someone controlled by Labour HQ nor someone philosophically predisposed to have constant fights. Um, Seems very sensible to me from a union's point of view. But what seems weird is that a plague on both your houses seems to have sort of made both houses quite happy. As in, the left is happy that they've, you know, they don't have coin, that they do have somebody um, on the left. And meanwhile, people that are glad to see the back of McCluskey are sort of quite happy because it's not his guy. And yeah. then presumably the people who voted for her, I mean, they voted for her, the reason they voted for her is because, you know, she's sort of left wing where it's, really counts where it can get results as in what unions should do and she's got lots of sort of ideas and a strong track record and she has made a few noises about no blank checks payment by results again i think from a labor point of view obviously that is a little bit scary because they're you know the biggest contributor but from a union's point of view i think that's incredibly smart you should neither have someone on the top who is, like I said, philosophically aligned to a particular uh, part of Labour, nor someone who is philosophically opposed to it. Yeah, and, and, and McCluskey was so into the role of being a kind of power broker in Labour. And I think, uh, I think it's good that we're going to be entering a new era there. Where it's, Yeah, the it's, wisdom it's, of democracy has taken a battering the last few years. But I think on this occasion... The, uh, you know, a large group of people came up with the right answer. Mini Raman, who always comes up with the right answer, is, <laughs> is <laughs> nice. camp- campaigns and comms director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Mini. Hi, Dorian. 
So White House officials said on Tuesday they'd um, managed to evacuate a total of 58,700 people from Kabul in the last 10 days. I mean, granted that the whole situation is pretty calamitous. We talked about this last week. Do you think that the US and their allies have sort of managed to pull it together to some extent when it comes to that specific issue of evacuations? Yeah, I mean, I think you you have to look at it in context. So that does seem like an okay number. And I'm not sure it would have been easy to get many more people out at that time. But I think the important thing to remember is that you can't really put a number on the amount of people who need protection. And Kabul was the only open airport. And we know that there will be a huge number of displaced people or at-risk people who simply couldn't get there. And now the Taliban are saying that only foreigners can leave by that route. So the UK and and other commitments are really quite low. So the UK's commitment is to resettle 20,000 people over five years. And I think I've said on this podcast before that if you're fleeing the Taliban, you simply don't have time to fill in the right form and wait for a government to save you. Now, the majority of people who need protection will end up crossing a border into a neighbouring country. And the crunch point will be when those countries start asking for help, when people have been left flailing for a really long time and able to get stability, and when people start arriving in Calais and at other borders asking for protection, that is when it will become clear whether the UK and the US and others have done or are doing enough. I mean, because this is something for which the West obviously has to take uh, more responsibility than it does for certain other areas that refugees are coming from. Do you think there is sufficient moral pressure? Obviously, it's still in the news, you know, topping the headlines every day. Do you think there's sufficient moral pressure to get these countries, including our own, to really make efforts to kind of to rehouse refugees and also to to sort of not be cruelly bureaucratic uh, about the paperwork? Yeah, I mean, I think there is. And I think we also saw this happen a bit during the Syrian crisis. And again, the government then, the UK government committed to taking in 20,000 people over five years. And at that time, um, everyone working in the sector said, you know, that's not enough. That's very slow process. It's a very limited route to resettlement. And I think you basically have to look at this in the big picture of what the government is trying to do with the asylum system and the borders bill, what is happening in Afghanistan is kind of what we said would happen at the beginning, which is that you can't just rely on one small resettlement route because that simply isn't how refugee journeys work. And if you are opening up one route, but closing down every other route, you're going to get in a really big problem when the, when people are still trying to get here and trying to join with their families and, and trying to get on with their lives. So you have to have a system in place that's kind of comprehensive and actually looks at the reality of people's lives. I guess this week can't stay away from Britain's top chat shop. <laughs> Returning to the show is the independent sketch writer, Tom Peck. Hi, Tom. Hello. How are you doing? How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Very, very well. So it's a, it's a media story for you. Jess Brammer got the Daily Mail treatment this weekend uh, ahead of her expected appointment as the BBC's head of news. She was dragged for partisan tweets about the government and for her fairly unscandalous private life. What's behind this, do you think? Was it specifically that, that case uh, last year when Brammer stood up for one of her journalists at HuffPost against a government minister, which became a story? Or is it just standard dislike of anyone who isn't a conservative? And therefore, in the minds of people like Steve Baker, neutral, because conservatives are neutral, uh, whereas uh, <laughs> people with left-wing beliefs are not. Well, it doesn't have to be either or. It can obviously be both. And it is. Uh, I think it's fairly standard politics. Um, the, the conservatives and their various outriders like Robbie Gibb want this job to be given to one of their own and they don't consider Jess Brammer to be one of their own. 
So they are going after her. And the reason it's become quite vicious is because they don't really have anything. You know, there is no barrel. They only have the bottom of the barrel. So they have to scrape that thing pretty hard. And it's pretty ugly because there's, there's a couple of tweets in support of Black Lives Matter, which members of every single party have done. There's nothing there, really. So, I mean, I know in the Mail on Sunday, they had to bring in, they did a piece on the fact that her partner is Jim Watson of The Guardian, who broke the story about the police being called to Boris Johnson's flat just before the election last year, which is which is a story that obviously the Mail on Sunday then spent two days pursuing. It's a story, as did the BBC. It's a story that any news alley would run. They have nothing really with which to discredit her, which is why they have to try so hard and why it becomes so ugly. Extraordinary abuse of the word toy boy uh, relating to Jim Watson there as well. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm I mean, sure he's secretly quite pleased. But. I mean, I, I mean, well, who, who, who wouldn't be? Do you think she's definitely getting it? I don't know, mate. I mean, I'm not a media correspondent. I, I have no idea how far down the line that is, but I can, but I can certainly say that it's, it, it, it won't, if she doesn't get the job, I mean, it looks like she will get it. If she doesn't get it, I can't really see how this campaign against her will have made any difference. Right, yeah. The, there, was, the, the, there was nothing in the campaign, you know. It's gone on for so long, and, and, it, and it's got down to the level of accusing Jim Watson of breaking a perfectly valid story that's entirely in the public interest, which just shows that there is nothing there. So if the BBC in any way swayed by this, there is nothing there for them to be swayed by, if you know what I mean. And I'm not an expert on BBC politics, but I, I, my rule of thumb is if Robbie Gibb is annoyed, then, then I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good rule. I mean, you don't have to be an expert on anything to think that. <laughs> <laughs> on this week's show, Brexit chickens come home to roost as Nando's and KFC close stores due to labour shortages. Will this become Brexit's trickiest legacy and what can be done about it? And as Afghanistan remains in crisis, we look at Britain's beach-loving foreign secretary, Although, as he pointed out, the sea was closed, which is uh, his equivalent to Ross's We Were On A Break. Um, exactly how did Dominic Raab get where he is today and why is he still there? Plus, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, whatever happened to the summer silly season, will we ever see long, hot weeks of trivial nonsense ever again? Now, there are many ways you can help Oh God, What Now keep going, including backing us on Patreon. But one of the easiest and best is to give us a positive review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It pushes us up the charts and brings us to the attention of new listeners. If you're listening on your phone, you can do us a big favour and review and rate us right now. Literally right now. We are surveying your phones and we won't do the (laughs) podcast until you do it. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you very much. Firstly, this week, as the pandemic recedes, are we finally seeing the real effects of our misbegotten exit from the EU? Stories of labour shortages have become commonplace. Both Nando's and KFC have closed branches due to a lack of workers to process chickens. And the meat industry has asked for permission to use prisoners in meat processing. The meat industry is suffering a recruitment crisis with around 14,000 vacancies. Meanwhile, a shortage of around 90,000 lorry drivers is causing voids on supermarket shelves and in the kitchens of chains like McDonald's and Subway. And the Isle of Wight social services had to call in emergency carers for vulnerable people when it ran out of staff earlier this month. Even the Daily Mail is warning, buy Christmas toys now. Perfect storm of Brexit and Covid threatened shortage of Barbies, PlayStation 5s and turkeys. Presumably the turkey isn't a toy, but who knows? It's it's an older readership. (laughs) (laughs) Are we now facing the reality of life without the pool of workers we had grown used to? And what does that mean for employment overall? 
Alex, Remainers did warn during the referendum about labour shortages once freedom of movement ended. But do you think that they kind of were hesitant to lean into it in case it looked like a selfish demand for cheap workers? I've no doubt that was part of it. But perhaps there was also a sense that the anti-immigration message had such cut through, it wasn't worth fighting on that front. In many senses, the story of Brexit is that for 40 years, few people made the positive case for the EU, while Brexiters had sort of well-oiled and tested anti-European arguments. And that fits, I think, into the larger context about an undercurrent of xenophobia. Few people for even longer made a positive case for immigration, while you know, the other side had well-oiled and tested anti-migrant arguments. And it's a bit late to start within the context of a referendum campaign to try and sell that, you know, immigration can be a good thing and ignore what you've been seeing on tabloid front pages for the last 70 years. Particularly if you're David Cameron. Yes. (laughs) The poultry industry is calling on the government for it to be added to the skilled workers list. Does this sort of expose the stupidity of dividing people into high and low skilled in the first place? I think so, not only for immigration purposes, I think more generally. I mean, the the truth is that everyone is either experienced in a task or needs training. Is a senior nurse low skilled compared to a doctor who just graduated? I, I don't I'm not convinced. Experience is the one thing you cannot rush. They have been trained in different things, obviously, but experience does count for a lot. And what is becoming clear is that Brexit has resulted in a sort of brain drain, an experience drain. And it will be, I think, a big anchor on the UK economy for many years to come, and one that wasn't fully anticipated. Minnie, as we know, the the straw man immigrant is simultaneously taking British jobs and lounging around on benefits. But what does the data tell us about the actual effect of a more open migration policy on the availability of jobs and the pay for those jobs? Yeah, so it's really difficult to definitively measure the overall effects of migration on jobs. And you kind of have to distinguish between the effect of migration on all workers in the economy and on the wages of different groups of workers, so low wage versus high wage. So overall, there's no evidence that it drives down wages, particularly for the working class. And in fact, migrants themselves are disproportionately represented in low wage sectors. And research has shown that the people most at risk of having their wages lowered by migration are actually other migrants. So I guess what I think I'm saying is the impact of migration on jobs depends on who you are, what kind of job you do and where you do it. But most importantly, depends on government policies around it. So a recent report by the Migration Advisory Committee found that, okay, yes, migration may increase competition for existing jobs in certain occupational sectors, but it can also create new jobs. And overwhelmingly, other factors had a greater impact on wages than migration itself. So you, you can't really look at it in isolation from policies related to housing, healthcare, employment and welfare, because all of those things have an impact on job ability, uh, job availability and rates of pay. So when somebody's sort of thinking, right, well, with the with these certain sort of low paid jobs, for example, in the food industry, that perhaps migrants from from um, from places where their their sort of wage expectations are lower will be willing to work for less, and that without them, you're going to have to kind of offer something 
offer something better, which is one of those things that sort of seems quite intuitive. Is it, are you saying that there's all these other factors that actually you know, combine to affect wages. Yeah, and I think that's the same thing. You know, what you're talking about there, that is actually about the labour market and not necessarily about migration. I mean, if you're looking at it in the context of kind of European workers and and what's been happening with, with the lorry industry, you know, we could have all predicted that European workers were plugging a gap in the labour market in certain industries and that once freedom of movement fell away, that we would be in real difficulty and that those same industries fail to protect workers' rights, whether or not they are British. So, you know, the hours are long, the shifts are irregular, the wage is low, workers have to pay for their own certification often, and then just not jobs for people who need stability or have a family. And and the likelihood of getting an entirely British workforce in those industries is, is quite low. But even if freedom of movement hadn't ended, labour shortages in those industries would have continued to be a problem because other European countries have taken steps to improve rights for that kind of worker. So in that instance, you can kind of see how migration has put a sticking plaster over the problem to an extent. But like lots of people have said the whole time, instead of kind of fixating on freedom of movement, what the government should have been focusing on is improving labour market regulation so that all workers, regardless of nationality, had improved conditions and rights and therefore better incentives to take on the job. Mm, yeah, can, and if you look at the work of the Financial Times journalist Sarah O'Connor, you know, the, the, the stuff that she's writing about actually what it's like being a driver of a heavy goods vehicle, you know, the the hours, the unpredictability, the fact that you're all the kind of hours that you actually spend sort of waiting around for work that you're not getting paid for. It's really no wonder that they're they're suffering a recruitment problem. Yeah, absolutely. And the same in the meat industry, same in farming, the way that those workers are treated, the way that they are often exploited is, is really, really bad. And, you know, it's not just a problem of, oh, well, we can get European workers in to do it. You know, if you improve workers' rights for migrants, you also improve them for everyone. So that's what the government should have been focusing on. Uh, And in the US, prisoners can be used for what is effectively forced labour. But here, prisoners who work through the Release on Temporary Licence programme do actually get paid. Some are sort of offered jobs when they when they get out. Um, There's, you know, there's sort of recruitment drives for people who um, are reaching the end of their sentences. It seems pretty grim when you see the headline request to use prisoners to work in abattoirs. Are there ethical issues with using prisoners in this way? Yeah, I think it's a it's a hard question to answer. I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this will accept that there are people in prison who shouldn't be or don't need to be there. So I think this kind of program is at least a way of ensuring that people don't kind of continue to be punished after they've served their sentences. And there is loads of evidence that having a stable job can actually decrease reoffending. So that makes a lot of sense. So I think this is fine as long as it forms part of a coherent stra- strategy which is focused on rehabilitation and is not just trying to plug a gap created by poor working conditions or poor policy choices and like we're obviously not there yet there's lots of reforms needed to the justice system to ensure that rehabilitation is prioritized and is central and you know central to those those policy streams but as long as people are, are trained properly that they're given the option to work there or not they're paid the same wage that anyone else would be then yeah it's kind of a good way for people who've committed an offense to regain a sense of normality and independence particularly once they're convicted have been spent. Tom, what do you make of the press coverage of the reasons for these shortages? I've noticed in a lot of stories, Brexit tends to get a single mention alongside other factors like COVID. But then there was there was a big spread in the mail or the mail on Sunday. And it did actually have under reasons. The first one was a big old Brexit. 
Um, so I wondered if things were changing there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, COVID came along quite literally the day after Brexit. The first case was on January the 31st, 2019, wasn't it, which was the day that we left the EU. Hmm. And it provides excellent cover for people who and the government who continues to maintain that Brexit is a great idea. But it's not as convenient as they may think, because, of course, you do have a controlled experiment. Like, in, like, for example, McDonald's can't get any milkshakes today, can they? Well, every country in the world has COVID. Every country in the world has McDonald's. Only one country in the world has Brexit, and that's the only one where you can't get a McDonald's milkshake. So and it doesn't it, include Northern Ireland, <laughs> incidentally. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, Even more of a controlled experiment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So it isn't that hard to explode the idea that um, core factors other than Brexit are the cause, but whether or not media outlets and politicians who are will always will always be determined to be overly generous towards the consequences of Brexit will will, will, will be persuaded otherwise. I think COVID will have to be a long way gone. Um, I mean, who knows what the state of COVID in a year's time, but. It will need to be slightly further in the rearview mirror in order for the the, pro- the problems which has to do with Brexit being firmly put back in the Brexit basket, if you know what I mean. But as, if, as, as, as with regards to the Daily Mail having the courage, if you like, to actually say, no, this is principally Brexit. Well, the, the Brexit is obviously something that the country voted for and, and which lots of news, news organisations campaigned for. But they do have a right to argue that Brexit is being poorly implemented. I mean, so you, I certainly, you mean, Steve Baker is always, he's always sort of mocked, and that, obviously there's nothing wrong with mocking Steve Baker. But he's always, but he's always <laughs> where, where, where would we be without that? <laughs> <laughs> but he's always mocked every time he says that Brexit is a disaster. But he does largely, in fairness, mean that it really didn't need to be implemented in the way that it has been. And 2016 to 19 was a complete horror show. And I think you will, when there are problems with Brexit, the people who voted, for, the people who campaigned for it, will will pin it down on, on on that aspect rather than the decision itself, and it will be rather rather thornier trying to say that you know all these problems have been directly caused by Brexit, and there is no better way of doing it. It's just how it is. So people who campaign campaign for Brexit will still be able to blame sort of bad outcomes of Brexit on Brexit, but not consider themselves to have been wrong in the first place, and. That's, I imagine, how we'll muddle along, muddle along in the years to come. Yes, Brexit was a good idea, but just not this Brexit. Exactly. Um, do you get the sense that anyone in government is sort of wants to take responsibility for the labour market and to look at some of these kind of all these this sort of confluence of factors, or is there an instinct to just tell business to sort it out? Absolutely not. I mean, the only person in government who's doing any sort of heavy lifting on the detail of this stuff is Michael Gove, who has vanished. Um, which isn't to say that he isn't sort of quietly getting on with things, these things, wherever it is that he now lives. And it, it, the, the problem with Brexit as, and the government that we have is that for a very long time, you can come to them with a thorny problem and they will just come back to you with an ideology, you know, with a viewpoint, with an idea. I mean, for a good example is Chris Grayling, who, when there was talk of potential food shortages in 2019, said, well, there won't be any food, for, food shortages because British farmers will just grow more. I mean, that's obviously stupid. It's completely stupid. Um, but, it, but it'll do, you know. Here, you know here's the, here's, you come to my door with a problem and I'll come back to you with my sort of poorly formed opinions and everything will be fine. And that, that, that is clearly where we are. I mean, with the North, you know, we, we spent five years arguing about like, these you know, problems at Dover, Calais, problems with the Northern Ireland border. We've had five years to come up with solutions. There clearly aren't going to be any. 
So all you have in the meantime, if, if there was an easy solution to this stuff that could be done within the framework of Brexit, somebody certainly would have come up with it by now. So we will just have, for now, here, here's the worldview, that will solve the problem, except it obviously doesn't. If only British milkshake farmers would pull their fingers out. <laughs> <laughs> now that people, should have, people will regret throwing them at Nigel Farage, won't they, now that they can't get another one. <laughs> Now that Brexit uh, has happened, does the government really sort of care about about public opinion on on Brexit? Because it's still being, you know, it's still being polled. But will it hurt the Tories' poll ratings if people, for example, can't have a turkey to play with at Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the the the, the, the chief executive of, of Iceland didn't he, said on said on the radio um, on 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 Wednesday morning that. Brexit already risks cancelling Christmas. I mean, what a genius. If there's one thing the British public can't cope with, it's the prospect of Christmas being cancelled. So it's a very, very, very successful attack line. I mean, Christmas feels like it gets cancelled earlier every year. Um, I don't know if it's t- sort of accidentally taken a knee on GB News or what have you. But of course, in, um, in, in, like in, in, in early December last year, well, when Dominic Cummings was at that select committee and said, you know, thousands of people died needlessly, um, he was sort of specifically referring to the very large numbers of people who died in the second wave in January. And that was, to a large extent, caused by Boris Johnson's absolute terror of there being a front page anywhere, particularly on the front page of The Sun, that could accuse him of cancelling Christmas. And if it gets to the point where, um, come December, parents can't get hold of their favourite toy for their kids or there's, there's some various bits of groceries that are not around... That, I imagine, will be something of a horror show for the government. But, of course, it will. Nobody wants to have their Christmas cancelled by COVID. But, of course, should that happen, there will be plenty of people who will creep out the woodwork who will be thrilled to have their Christmas cancelled by Brexit. Like the sort of people for whom, you know, in about 2018, when it became completely clear that there will be no sort of economic or living standards upside to Brexit, that then began to claim that, well, you know, that's why we voted for it. You know, like Giles Fraser, who 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 claimed in 2019 that, um, that one of the best things about Brexit is that parents, well, children will now have to wipe their parents' bums for them, whether they want them to or not. And people will be so poor that they won't be able to leave their hometowns anymore. And, that, and, that, and that's a good thing. So, there, so if we have a sort of a, a crap Christmas, there'll be plenty of Brexiteers who will just say that, no, this is a real Christmas. This is what Christmas is really about. It doesn't matter if you're having to explain to your kids that um, you know Santa, Santa does exist. But unfortunately, there's been a mix-up, and he's given every single present to some boy who lives in an airfield in Kent. But they are working through it, and maybe maybe he'll be here by April. Plenty of Brexiteers who'll be who'll be fine with a sort of a, a pared-back shit Christmas, and they've gone so mad that they'll be vindicated by it. I well, what's the about Joseph and Mary had to spend Christmas in a manger without a turkey or a PlayStation Five, <laughs> and they were fine. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, Alex, finally, the UK struggled to find British workers for jobs like fruit picking during the pandemic, care workers now. Is it just there aren't enough sort of people in the labour market or, or is it about pay and conditions? Could things be done that would make these, these jobs a lot more attractive? I, mean, I don't know how attractive you can make fruit picking, but, but more so. so- it's a good it, these are good examples and you know tom and minnie have covered part of it so the chair of the national care association was very clear that this was not a pandemic issue but a brexit issue because according to her we went into the pandemic with 164000 vacancies in the care sector okay now 
slightly better terms and conditions won't solve 164,000 vacancies when you have a government that simultaneously has decided to close borders. So they have limited the, the labor market supply to a finite number. And now all those companies will begin to effectively fight to pinch stuff from each other, which will result in slightly better terms and conditions. But that's only a sort of short-term fix. A lot of people get it wrong because they think of full employment as a good thing, which it is, but they interpret full employment to mean that everybody's employed at the same time, that it's a hundred percent employment, which it is not. Companies need a talent pool to choose from. Economies need a little bit of churn, otherwise they stagnate. So if you have huge number of vacancies, And companies, we're already seeing companies like Tesco and Amazon offering bonuses to joiners in areas where they, they, um, they have shortages. This, it hollows out competition and cements the dominance of the few giants at the expect, the expense of smaller companies. So the question you should be asking is, if McDonald's is struggling to get milkshakes to its restaurant with the sophisticated supply chain that it has, with the deep pockets that it has, what is happening to the level below that? What is happening to smaller SMEs struggling to get supplies through? The answer is they're getting shafted. So the macroeconomic result of this kind of scramble for employment is that the giants jostle out of it winners, but it leads to high inflation and to the economy stagnating. You need to open the tap of labor supply. You can decide how you do that. There are several ways to do that. You can say to people, you have to work longer. It's not a popular option. You can say to people, you have to have more babies. That obviously has a built-in time lag <laughs> before before you can give birth to a, to an HGV driver of the future. You can introduce, you can reintroduce child labor, or you can open the taps of migration a little bit and say these industries are allowed a migrating workforce. That is a huge peril for this Brexit government because if they end up through a series of exemptions, basically restoring freedom of movement, but only one way, people will begin to say, hold on, why are we waiting in queues? You got, we voted to stop freedom of movement because we didn't like people coming in, not because we wanted it to be more difficult to go out. Mm. So why have we sacrificed our freedom to move freely while you're allowing loads of people to come in? And the moment you have that conversation, then the other domino that falls is single market membership because people will start to say, well, if we have to have freedom of movement, why are we taking all the pain of not being in the single market? And so you have people like... like uh, You know, Matthew Lynn in the Telegraph this week writing pieces. Now is not the time to, to loosen immigration rules. Damn be Christmas. You don't need a turkey. That's where we've gotten to, to these people explicitly saying that they, they prefer a poorer, smaller monoculture 
rather than thriving with the help of foreigners. I like the idea that this is like the 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 giant domino meme that you see on Twitter, and the very tiny domino is a McDonald's milkshake, and the big dom- <laughs> the big domino is rejoin the single market. <laughs> it's kind of what it is. Yeah. Well, let's see. Well, let's uh, fingers crossed. Now, Dominic Raab seems to have survived demands for him to resign over his refusal to return from his £40,000 holiday in beautiful Crete to manage the Afghanistan crisis. He has since posted a picture of himself being very stern on the phone. You say he didn't make a crucial phone call because he was on holiday, but there he is, actually using a telephone. So, advantage Raab. As Foreign Secretary during COVID, he hasn't had much to do. Afghanistan was his first real crisis. Could he have managed it any worse? And why is he in the job in the first place? Um, Tom, let's start with the politics. Do you think Rob is a better or worse foreign secretary than the scruffy blonde fella who held the post from 2016 to 2018? I mean, what what a question. I mean, it's sort of like <laughs> taking me down the alleyway that I used to... <laughs> I used to walk down an alleyway to school that was full of dog turds. It was like asking me which one smells the sweetest. I mean, I don't know how you can possibly answer it. Dominic Raab, as you've alluded to in your in your question there, has had it sort of easy as a foreign secretary in the sense that he's been doing the job since June 2019. It's, it's a job that is principally based on foreign travel, and he's been locked down for three quarters of it. He has entirely failed in the very first thing he's been asked to do. But is he any worse than Boris Johnson? I mean, Boris Johnson's principal failure was that diplomats' words are expensive. Words matter. Diplomats don't necessarily do very much, but what they say carries weight. So there's a reason people do people use the, the, the job diplomat has become a description of a way of being, being diplomatic, saying diplomatic things. And, of course, he just couldn't prevent – he's a columnist, not a diplomat, and couldn't prevent himself from, you know – making jokes about dead bodies on the beach in Libya, which I, which I was there at, the weird conservative fringe event, and I sort of couldn't really believe what I'd heard. And Dominic Raab has not done anything like that. So, so, so arguably he's been better, but then at the same time he's had one thing to do and he hasn't exactly done it. If you're asking me to pick which turd smells the sweetest, uh, possibly, possibly Dominic Raab, but I don't <laughs> think that necessarily, um, that necessarily sheds any light on anything to say that he's better than Boris Johnson was. I mean, there appears to be a briefing war within the government, with Rob saying Johnson was OK with him staying on holiday till Sunday, but other sources are saying he defied orders to come back. So do we actually know the kind of details of this situation? I mean, this, well, that really is the aspect that I just can't get over. There's two parts of the story, aren't there? Like On the Sunday, when he clearly should have come back, and there's now all this stuff about was he on a paddleboard or was he in his meeting or no, he couldn't have been on a <laughs> The sea was closed. <laughs> the sea was closed, exactly. Yada, yada, yada. I mean, uh, but... And maybe he shouldn't spend six hours coming back with, you know, on an aeroplane traveling when it's a pressing crisis and he is foreign section and he should be able to work from abroad regardless. And he's coming back to an office where that's been, that's been not, everyone's been working from home from for, for 18 months anyway. Mm. But part one of the story is the sheer facts. You know, I am a political sketch writer, yeah? My job is to take the piss out of politicians. And I have lost count of the number of holidays and stuff that I have not been able to do because it's crucially important that I am at my desk <laughs> taking the piss out of these guys and they're on holiday. Like, they're, they're the ones doing it. Right? If you're, I mean, the deputy editor, so the political editor and the deputy political editor of The Independent 
can't go on holiday at the same time, right? And that is the same in any walk of life, any line of work. It doesn't matter what. If you're the, you know, the, the deputy chimney sweep and the chief chimney sweep can't go on holiday at the same time. And yet the prime minister and the deputy prime minister are on holiday at the same time. Now, I don't like these stories in the summer where it's like, oh, this guy's on holiday. It's a disgrace because they do have to go. I don't mind people going on holiday. August things happen in August and it's always an easy hit to see who's on holiday and who wasn't. But I don't think any on any occasion the PM and the deputy PM have been off on off on holiday together. And more to the point, it's happened and, and now they say, well, it took everybody by surprise. The, 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 the fall of Kabul, right? The fall of Kabul was the end point of a march, right? Which began a good fifteen hundred miles away over the border in pa- Pakistan. I mean, was it Monty Python's? I can't remember. Was it Monty Python's Flying Circus, where for a while they had an introduction, which was some guy running from over the horizon, and then they'd cut something else, and then, yeah. he'd be cut, then they'd come back to him, and he'd sort of spend about eight minutes appearing, and then suddenly he'd be <laughs> right in the front of the screen. And it's, it's, it's like saying, well, oh, my God, it's Monty Python's Flying Circus. Where, how did that start? <laughs> they had no idea. They had no idea. Like, they've literally marched, and they've been committing murderous atrocities all the way along this march for 1,500 miles. And then here we are. Oh, shite, I'm in Crete, and it's taken me right by surprise. And it's the first thing I've had to do in nigh on two years. That is the bit that is incredible. I'm not so much bothered about when he did or didn't come back, or the outer was he on the, you know, the, he doesn't really need to publish a minute-by-minute account of where he, whether he was on the beach at that point or in his hotel. Uh, apparently he yada, checked yada, yada, on yada. his family, and I quote, episodically <laughs> this was this was what he said this was what he said on wednesday morning there was a delicious exchange with michelle hussein on wednesday morning where he said she said uh, were you ordered by officials to come back and he replied my officials didn't order me to come back and she said were you ordered by any officials to come back to which he replied i won't add to speculation in the media but I mean, I am inclined, and uh, po- quite possibly wrongly, to not be too bothered about the specifics of that day and where he was and what he was doing. And I also slightly accept his explanation about why he didn't make that phone call to the Afghan foreign minister, because it was already in the evening Afghan time, and he prioritised getting the Brits home. That is a plausible case. And you can be Dominic Raab's biggest detractor, which I arguably am. But I've never heard anybody really accuse. He's got all sorts. His main problem is he's got a suite of very poor quality opinions. But I don't think he's. I don't think anybody would really accuse him of being lazy because you frankly can't be as imbecilic as him and make it as far in life as he has by being idle. And he's not best with connections in the way his boss is. But the fact that they were both away at the same time when this huge thing was quite literally, quite literally coming over the horizon. And, and we are where we are. Alex, there's a, a cue for some Robology. Rob has been MP for Esher and Walton since 2010, and he's been <laughs> solidly on the right of the party, anti-immigration, anti-trade union, pro-austerity, of course, pro-Brexit. What's his story prior to entering the Commons? What's, what stands out for you? He's a mystery, you know. Um, Nothing in his Does that mean you haven't done your research? No, no. No, no, I'm obsessed with Rab, but he's genuinely a mystery. Like, nothing in his past points towards ultra-conservatism, okay? He's the son of a Jewish refugee, lost his father to cancer very young, community involvement, sport, everything in his history says, join new labour, basically. And nothing in his past points towards him being thick, 
he's got a bachelor's in jurisprudence from Oxford, a scholarship on international law to do his master's in Cambridge, a decent career in the civil service on the diplomatic side. And yet the result is this ultra right wing person into whose eyes you look and it's like staring into the window of an old boiler whose pilot light refuses to come on. <laughs> I mean, he is clearly overpromoted. That much I can say with some certainty. He looks like the guy in Quantum Leap, just as he's going into a body constantly, and he doesn't know whose he doesn't know whose body it is. So when he goes, "Oh boy," looking around for, for clues. Yes. Um, I want to come to Minnie on this one, actually. As as Alex mentioned, there are signs that he he could have had a quite different path. As a lawyer, Rob worked on secondment for the human rights campaign group Liberty. He was helping prosecute war criminals in The Hague. And as recently as 2014, he wrote in a pamphlet, Britain has a proud tradition of providing a safe haven for those fleeing persecution from despots and dictators. And very sympathetic to the financial, social and cultural challenges faced again, faced by refugees. How does someone like that end up taking such a hard line? Is it is it just crude careerism, or did he, I don't know, go on a an Ayn Rand binge round <laughs> round Sadia's house one weekend? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I had the same feeling as Alex. It was it was so confusing to kind of think about him having had these opinions previously and how they fit with him now. I actually don't think it's that surprising if you look at him as a whole. So I think Shona Jolly QC described him as having a kind of cherry picking approach to liberties. And I think that's accurate. So, you know, he's someone who opposes the Snoopers Charter, but he hates the Human Rights Act. So they're kind of conflicting ideologies, but basically he supports individual liberty, but not the ability to hold the state to account. So I think on refugees and migrants, what he was actually saying, and it was in a pamphlet for the Social Market Foundation, mm. is that once people are here and have status, they should be able to work and learn English, which is a very low bar. <laughs> you know, that it's very low, but it seems generous considering the current approach at the Home Office. You know, it makes economic sense. Of course, people who are living here permanently should have the opportunity to learn skills. But what he was not advocating for was a fairer asylum system in general. And at some points, he refers to kind of legitimate refugees, which is actually very in line with the government's current two-tier approach in the Borders Bill. So it it kind of fits with this confused ideology. And and ultimately, I I don't think he would stick his neck out and risk his cabinet position, even if he did Mm. want kind of reform to the asylum system. And he famously admitted in 2018 that he hadn't quite understood the full extent of UK trade reliance on the Dover Calais crossing, which any child on a ferry trip would know. Um, and he was nicknamed the turnip in Brussels during Brexit negotiations, because I think Rob sounds like the Dutch word for turnip. Is his position purely down to Brexit loyalty, do you think? Does he have some underappreciated qualities? No, I mean, he's he's so charmless that like Brexit loyalty has to have played a big part in it. I mean, I, I've been reading a lot of Tories or kind of Tory sources saying that, you know, he's very analytical and that he's a big fan of evidence and he's very resourceful. But I mean, he didn't read the Good Friday Agreement when he was Brexit secretary. And he once like got in an argument with the UK Statistics Authority for coming out with like a random stat about migration and housing that no one had ever seen before, and which turned out to be inaccurate. So those two things don't add up. He can't be both, you know, very analytical and a fan of big fan of evidence and then not read things that are in front of him. So I I think 
probably his dropping out of the Tory leadership race and lending his support to Johnson afterwards is a more important factor into how he's kind of got where he is overpromoted, as Alex said. Alex, as we know uh, from tweets from numerous Tory MPs, Rob has a Stakhanovite work ethic, but also <laughs> he, he sort of seems to make the right noises. In 2012, he co-authored the pamphlet Britannia Unchained with four fellow members of the Thatcherite Free Enterprise Group, including podcast faves Pretty Patel and Liz Truss. Um, four of the five authors have ended up in Johnson's cabinet. What's the appeal I mean, part of it, I think, is that they define themselves by opposition to David Cameron's socially liberal green conservatism that was loathed by uh, other wings in the party. And I guess one of the drivers of post-Cameron leaders has been to distance themselves from that. I mean, in that, that pamphlet is kind of amazing. He wrote, the talented have nothing to fear, which is a weird thing for someone who lost their father to cancer at age 12 to write and speaking about those hoping to coast. It's classic right-wing shithead stuff. (laughs) Darker mutterings suggest there's quite a lot of dark money coming from the right wing of the Republican Tea Party, sloshing around UK politics via think tank land. But I don't want to stray into conspiracy territories. There there are certain aspects of that who, which are provable and documented, like the Atlantic Bridge Project and things like that. So maybe there are parts of the Conservative Party which, you know, the international right wing quite likes. And importantly for his current job, is there any sign that he has a vision for the UK's role in the world? I mean, you don't necessarily, you can be Foreign Secretary without one, but it, it helps. Yeah, no, I I mean, if he couldn't see the fall of Kabul a day after Kabul fell, I don't have much faith in his vision of anything. Tom, some Tories obviously privately want him to go um, over Afghanistan. Johnson, as we know, is loath to sack anyone unless they've been caught canoodling on CCTV. But do you think that he uh, is vulnerable in the next reshuffle? Well, with a reshuffle, whenever you you bring someone in, and then you have to every, every decision that you make has consequences further down the line, and every change mm. you make. So somebody would have to be brought in to replace him. I don't I don't see as he would necessarily be considered worth just entirely booting out. So I think the answer to your question is a straightforward yes. I, th- I think ultimately the Afghanistan story will eventually move on from, I mean, I think Dominic Raab's holidays become a sort of displacement story for the entire Afghanistan crisis. Mm. And in a month or two's time, I don't suppose whatever's going on in Afghanistan will be too closely alloyed with whether or not Dominic Raab was on a paddleboard at a particular time or not. So I don't, I think he'll probably be okay. I, I, I think there'll be a lot of people who feel like he's been sort of targeted for a huge global, global crisis and there will be no justification for him losing his job. I don't really see why. But Boris Johnson has no problem. Well, currently, anyway, there's, there's lots of what, what happen, might happen in the next reshuffle, but Boris Johnson's strategy for a long time has, has been absolutely to not have a problem with people who are useless um, in very high jobs because they don't pose a threat to him. I mean, if Dominic Raab is going to lose his job for, for what he did or didn't do on a Cretan beach at a moment of crisis, 
then you know, Gavin Williamson will be jailed. Um, and for Prince Godman, <laughs> what will happen to Pretty Patel? I mean, if, 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 if this reshuffle is going to is going to sort of sack people for being useless, then Rob's not going to be too too high up the uh, too, too yeah, it's not going to be first a- in front of the firing squad. It's a sort of human centipede of incompetence, yeah. isn't yeah, it? Exactly. It's a visceral description. <laughs> <laughs> Haunting. Obviously, Rob did did run for leader. His majority fell by ninety percent in twenty nineteen to just two thousand seven hundred forty three. After massive tactical voting led to a Lib Dem surge, we saw what happened to kind of you know the Amber Rudd, who had a much much smaller majority, and that really hurt her ambitions. Is that number a small enough margin to sort of cause him uh, cause him any angst? Amber Rudd's very small majority in Hastings was considered to be a problem for her in becoming Tory leader because the Tory the Tory party would be unlikely to make someone leader who has the very real prospect of not holding their seat at a general election. Dominic Raab's tiny majority, t- small majority would would, lo- would cause him angst if he was in a position to be running for the Conservative Party leadership. I can't see that happening, before, at least before 2024. I don't think Johnson will wander easily, though people speculate that he is. As regards to the prospects of him losing his small majority in 2024... That would require me to make some sort of prediction about what I'm, what's going to happen in that election, and I'm just not in that game <laughs> no, at all. No, that's fair <laughs> enough. Because everything is so mad, and currents. I mean, the, I mean, the, 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 the Lib Dems winning in Amersham, and, and the Tories winning in um, in Hartlepool. There are you know, bizarre microclimates everywhere, and I have uh, by 2024 there won't be, presumably won't be much Brexit around. Won't be, won't be much COVID around. God knows what will be around. So I have no, <laughs> I have, so I have no light to shed really on well, Dominic Raab's chances in 2024, and, and neither does anybody. I don't need the predictions either, but he continues to play a starring role in my 2024 crumbling blue wall fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, well, well, if, if, if things follow <clears throat> the trajectory of which they are currently following, and if there is no huge rupture then it's certainly true that places like Isha are turning their back on Conservatives. And there is no concrete reason to see that slowing, especially now they've got somebody leading the Labour Party who they'll be more prepared to vote for than they did last time round. So as things currently stand, I would say, yes, he is in mortal danger. But as things currently stand, is not how they will stand in three years' time. Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated, where each week we separate the overhyped from the sleeper hits in the world of politics. Tom Peck, what's your choice? Um, overrated, well, we have touched on this a great deal already, but overrated, I've gone with COVID. Um, in the- <laughs> <laughs> Who is overpraising COVID? <laughs> in the sense that I do think the point of which it is a cure-all excuse for absolutely everything in politics and in life will fall away. In life, I mean, I bought some curtains on Kickstarter three years ago, which are still not being delivered. And it was only um, about a year ago that that started to be blamed on COVID. There was obviously two years of two years of reasons leading up to that. And we, we, we've already talked about it with, you know, if, if Christmas deliveries are in trouble in four months time, probably there will be a bit of um, a bit of COVID brought into it. But I think that the point at which it is a cure-all excuse for all failures is limited 
So what is COVID being overrated? <laughs> <laughs> What's the underrated excuse for non-delivery of curtains? Um, oh, China. <laughs> well, as a as a country overall, everything. Well, actually, that's true. Actually, well, they, I don't know. They had some problem with their factory in China, and now they've got some problem with COVID. And I'm sure the problems are now one and the same. But I still haven't got the curtains. It'll be so, Afghanistan no. now. <laughs> so, this is my, my favourite overrated, underrated ever. I think now smallpox. That's a disease. <laughs> Sadly, due to the fall of Kabul, we are unable to process delivery of curtains. <laughs> but no, what is your underrated? Underrated, I have gone for the Daily Mail. There are many reasons for people like us to not like the Daily Mail. Many indeed. And there are, there are virtually no reasons to like any of their columnists. But I do think this sort of pro-Remain world of which essentially we are all part can underclub or or not give credit for the very 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 large amount of holding the government to account that the Daily Mail do. They spot a story all the time. I mean, this this Dominic Raab stuff on his Cretan beach on Sunday. The Daily Mail's done all of the heavy lifting on that. All of the stuff about Boris Johnson's two hundred grand flat refurb has come out of the Daily Mail. People in our little political world probably, probably should consider that whilst there are 10 reasons to hate them, there might be two not to. Now, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays email from the swift completion of its appointed rounds. (laughs) So it's time for But Your Emails. This week, Dina Godfrey says, it's nearly 20 years since 9-11. I was 22 at the time, and while it all feels somehow very recent, all this talk of two decades of pointless war in Afghanistan is making me feel old as fuck. Why do some historical events that a person has lived through seem closer than others? Which events make the panel feel old as fuck? Uh, Minnie? I think this is really hard. Uh, I think the thing that seems like it didn't That's because you're a baby. I knew someone was going to say that. That's why I found it hard. Um, I think the thing that that always surprises me at how long ago it was is just like Princess Diana's death and that year, 1997. I'm just like, that year... Tony Blair and Prince, it, it somehow seems like it was just yesterday, but also so long ago. And I don't know whether that's just because it's like the point at time when I was becoming a conscious person and understood events were happening and that news was a thing and that there was other stuff going on outside of primary school. So <laughs> that's probably the, the thing for me. But yeah, I don't know otherwise. Alex. Oh, uh, for me, it's it's a personal event, if that makes sense. So it's going to see Close Encounters of the Third Kind with my dad in the cinema, which was my really first big sci-fi film sort of seen in a huge, very modern cinema with with a slightly curved screen and Dolby surround sound, which was unheard of at the time. How long ago do you reckon that was, Dorian? What, it's 40 years, isn't it? 45 years ago. Jesus. That totally, totally floors me. Tom? What, what makes me feel old? I was watching a Greg Davies stand-up show last night and I discovered that I am now as old as he was when he played Mr Gilbert in The Inbetweeners which nearly finished me off. <laughs> um, but anyway, 
I guess I try. Tony Blair did that. He made his little intervention on Afghanistan this week, didn't he? And one of the things I he I mean, like many people, I still hero worship him and, and will make um, excuses for basically everything he's ever done wrong, which is a long list. But I do. But when he was a very successful prime minister for a very long time, I do often try and remember that when he became prime minister in 1997, all very few people had sent an email, and when he stopped being prime minister in 2000. In, 2007 nobody really had an iphone so if you consider all of the madness of politics now um and a lot of it generated through technological change mm. in some ways he did have it quite easy well for me apart from the uh oh god what now backroom team who insist on claiming that they weren't born for euro 96 <laughs> or the death of princess diana no for me it's those things that i actually obsess over relative distances so for example when I was sort of eight, say, playing with toy soldiers, the distance between then and the end of the Second World War is the same as the distance between then and now. Yeah, and I think that's so why most things. people most people who are over 70 genuinely do believe that they fought in the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I honestly think that's slightly why. I mean, I, I, I sort of, I was born in 1982, and I think that's probably about halfway between the Second World War and now. Yeah, and yeah. So, of course, I, it, that, that, as far as I'm concerned, pretty much means that I was, you know, evacuated from Dunkirk personally. Um, <laughs> and it's definitely, it definitely must be why there is such a flavour of, um, in the, like, like the Jeff Boycott lot, who essentially consider themselves to have fought in the war, even though people who are older than them are like, oh my God, don't do Brexit, don't put any of this stuff in jeopardy that we fought for. But they sort of can't really remember that they didn't fight for it themselves. But if they had, I'm sure they'd have been very, very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And that's the show. Thanks to Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Alex. Thank you. And our returning guest, Tom Peck. Thanks very much. Pleasure. On the extra bit this week, we'll be mourning the glorious nonsense of the silly season before the days of 24-7-365 crisis news. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. A big thank you from me to Dara Maguire, Ruth Durbin-Jackson, Melinda Haunton, Tamsin Kavanagh, Martin Robson, Matthew Taylor and John Irving. Hello and much appreciation from me to Jason Merike, Andy P, Martin Otto, Steve-O, Christine Banks, Deborah Berry and Peter McGeorge. And finally, thanks to Don McKenzie, Roselle Bentheim, Andrew Crowley, Lars Williams, Samuel Little, Nadia Wright, and Justin O'Hanlon. Take care and see you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alexandrave and Minnie Raman. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. Born after Euro 96, our intern was Nat Amos. Born after Euro 96, an audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Born before Euro 96. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? It's a Podmasters production. Now, welcome to the extra bit for Patreon backers, where we're going to discuss a much missed aspect of British political culture, the silly season. Younger listeners may not know there was once a time when the parliamentary summer recess, <laughs> when there was a dearth of serious news and the nation could rejoice in heartwarming tomfoolery. The term first entered use in 1861, when the Saturday Review explained the hands which at other times wield the pen for our instruction are now wielding the gun on a Scotch moor or the alpenstock on a Swiss mountain. 
work is left to feebler hands. When the second and third rate hands are on, we sink from nonsense written with a purpose to nonsense written because the writer must write either nonsense or nothing. But now it feels like this heavy news every day of the year. What happened and will we ever get back to the days when the death of Britain's best-loved carp delighted the nation's breakfast tables? (laughs) Um, Tom, you are a seasoned journalist, a hand who wields the pen for our instruction. Um, What killed the silly season? Was it it Brexit, climate change, social media or all of the above? Uh, I would hate to think that it's been killed. It's just, it's just, you know, Ronald Reagan said that if freedom is always one generation from extinction. Well, it doesn't actually go extinct. It just has a bit of time off. I'm sure that things won't be this grim and this miserable forever. I mean, I, you talk about me being a seasoned journalist. I remember when I, I mean, I used to work a lot of Saturday shifts um, in August. I don't have to do that so much anymore. Saturday, Sunday shifts on news in the, in August. And I did that for a long time. And I would get on the train to work and just almost find myself looking mournfully out of the tube carriage doors thinking, I wonder who hasn't yet died in a light aircraft crash that I will be typing up later. Because it's, it's the, 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 the classic quiet news day. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of light aircraft crashes and it's only when nothing else happens that they make the news. And <laughs> it would almost, it would be a real, with a real sense of melancholy that metronomically it would pop up on Sky News that someone's died in a light aircraft crash. Like, no. If, there, if, only, if only something bigger had happened, then we wouldn't have to worry about them. That was a trailer for the bonus edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a bit more Oh God, What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll be cock-a-hoop. And don't forget, our new weekly mini-cast, Oh God, What Else, is out every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. See you next week. 